hey, younger Matt, you've had past experiences that have created limiting beliefs, bad habits and fears in your life. You know, they might go against what I'm saying. What I ask you to do is as you're reading this, put them aside. Take what I say just with a grain of salt and as an experiment, be curious and give it a crack just to see what I'm on about. Be real, be you, be authentic. This means be truthful to everything, every thought, feeling and action. People truly appreciate the real you. No one is asking for a facade. When you open up to the world, the world opens up to you. Guess what? I'm now an international presenter on mental health. I stepped way out of my comfort zone and sure enough, it led me to my purpose. It's because I'm now doing what's most fulfilling that I cured my depression, my anxiety and suicidal thoughts. Despite people commenting that speaking isn't a real job, you'll go nowhere with that. Be real, Matt, you should do something else. I did what I knew I was meant to do. I listened to my heart, surrounded myself with the right people. And of course, things played out how they did. My life has meaning and my heart's on fire. Hey Matt, let's see what comes from these things. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to see what unfolds. Much love, your older self. It's normal for teenagers to sometimes be moody, grumpy, and stressed about all the challenges they face at school with friends, how they look, and what will bring meaning to their lives. But how do we know when that behaviour crosses the line into depression? And how do we have conversations to check in with our teens and tackle their depression head on? Matt developed depression in his early teenage years. At 12, he was living a comfortable suburban life, but he always questioned himself his self-worth, self-image, what value he could bring to the world. Would it even matter if he wasn't in it? At 16, Matt became a paraplegic after attempting suicide. Matt travels all over Australia and internationally giving motivational talks and lives his life with a passion to help others. Hi, I'm Rebecca Sparrow and this is Navigating Parenthood, Talking to Teens, brought to you by HCF, Australia's largest not-for-profit health fund, And today we're learning how to talk about the teenage experience of depression. This podcast contains general health information and shouldn't be relied on as medical advice. For health concerns, speak to your doctor. HCF doesn't endorse any statements or opinions made during the podcast. If the podcast makes you feel depressed or anxious and you need to talk to someone straight away, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Matt, take me back to when you were maybe 12 or 13. Is this when you started having negative thoughts? Yeah, well, they started with questions I had for myself because I was always a curious kid. I still am today. But firstly, what was the meaning of my life? That popped in my head, which bothered me because it led to, well, if I was dead, would anything change? And was I a valuable part to society? So really at the age of 12, you were having these massive questions about your purpose of why you were here. Yeah, it just didn't make sense. Like, like we're all here. What brought us here? Why are we here? And my answer to those questions were I was 12 years old, had no job, lived at home with my parents. Therefore, I was just taking up space. So if I was gone and dead, nothing would change. And therefore, my life meant nothing. Well, I felt worthless. Mm. Like, plain and simple. And then... I mean, there's nothing, no other word for it. So you're having all these massive 
thoughts at such a young age. Did you talk to anybody about it? No, no one, no one in my life opened up. It'd be my friends, my family. Mainly, like my family kept everything close. Like when when things were depressing or got overwhelming, they kept it to themselves and dealt with them themselves. So I adopted that and never spoke. So you, it didn't even cross your mind to think, oh, you know, I'm feeling really flat. I should chat to mum and dad about it. From my perspective, I was looking around at others and they were all happy. So I just, I thought, well, I'm here with these thoughts in my head. Let's keep them to myself. Don't need to ruin their smiles. I did my best to keep a smile on. Always wanted to put on a smile for everyone else. Right. Even when I was the most depressed. Why is that? Because I didn't want anyone else asking questions. I didn't want anyone caring, really. I felt I wasn't worth it, so that's what I did. What was the attitude in your family and community around talking about your feelings and these kinds of thoughts? Well, something I used to hear, whether it's from parents or just people around, was hard, have a cup of concrete, harden up. Yeah. Um, be a man. Yeah. Do it yourself. Um, and from what, from what age would you have been hearing that message? Well, as long as I can remember. Right. I mean, they were just things you'd hear floating around, whether it was, yeah, from family members, people, just friends or whoever. When you were around 13 years old, you met a new friend and something changed in your life. Can you tell me about that? This time we had arranged to sleep over his place. Mm-hmm. And so I lied to my parents, like saying I was sleeping over at a friend's place from someone at school. Why did you lie to your parents? Because you thought they won't let me... S- um, well, stay that, over at a person they don't know? Or? Yeah, they didn't know him, so they okay. wouldn't let me like, sleep over. They were very, very cautious about those things. Yeah. Well, then he asked me like, if I wanted to smoke with him, and I, I was been intimidated. Like, I, I'd never touched drugs before like before that. And um, it's like, don't worry, the weed will just mellow you out and make you feel good. And it sort of clicked with me. I was like, wow, back in my mind, I'm feeling depressed now for six months. Sure. like Yeah, <laughs> so you're I thinking, smoked, okay. Yeah. <laughs> The result of that was I thought it helped that I wanted more because I wasn't feeling depressed. I wasn't feeling anxious when I was high. And so meanwhile, you're still going to school. Yeah. Did anyone pick up on anything? Are there there signs at this point that you're thinking, oh, you know, my parents or teachers could have have noticed? Not at this stage. It was actually eight months later. My girlfriend at the time, she found out uh, some of my friends had started smoking weed and that I had joined them. So she approached me and basically gives me two options, her or the drugs. And what did you choose? I lied to her at first and said, I'm going to, I don't need the drugs. I want to stay with you. But but in reality, like in my mind, I'd had the drugs for eight months now. She'd been in my life for four months. Why is she telling me this? Who's she to tell me I can't? Like, who's she to tell me, I don't know what's best for me, what's yeah. helping me? But I realised I was getting angry towards her and building resentment that I took a step back and was like, oh, she hasn't actually done anything wrong. Maybe she's onto something. So the thing was, Viv was her name. She gave me a sense of fulfilment that I hadn't had up until that point. Whether it's my parents, siblings, friends, like a close connection. And that was what it was. Had she not been there in my life at the time, God knows where I'd be now. And so what did life start to look like then? Well, I picked up other habits, DJing, which was great, guitar, which I played every day. But then eventually, which was about, oh, give or take, four months later, five months later, I started the gym obsessively. Like I, I was f- 
just feeding my ego, feeding my insecurities all day, every day. So what do you think you look like from the outside? What do you think people thought when they looked at you? Well, I was smashing goals. Like I was getting bigger. I was getting leaner. People were like, what's this guy doing? What's this guy taking? <laughs> He's got a lot of friends. He, he No family like, like problems. Got like, this girlfriend, that DJing. Yeah. yeah, there was nothing wrong from the outside at all. And how? But how did you feel inside? Destroyed, just broken. I was worthless. So you're still feeling that way, and but on the outside you're projecting the complete opposite. And was anybody picking up any signs? I was skipping school quite a lot. I just walk out, and my coordinator approached me and asked what I was doing. Like, why are you skipping? You can't be doing that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I just wanted to disappear. Really, that's why I was leaving. I didn't want to be around any anyone. And she um, basically said, I, I, I think you should see the school counsellor. Like, how you're feeling is more important than the fact that I have to punish you for what you've done. And what did you think? I'm not soft, but I have to see a school counsellor. So I, I was a bit hesitant to it at first, but I eventually gave in. I said, gave in, I went and saw the counsellor. And she helped. She got things off my chest. It was just this thought, though, just... Like after about five or six sessions, I was, it just really drilled me. I was like, what am I doing this for? Why am I, why am I opening up to her? I mean, I was opening up to Viv and other friends. Like, <laughs> so that's a stop. And so I started lying to everyone. And then tell me about the day that you woke up and decided you wouldn't go to the gym. I was January 9th, 2016. Yeah, I'm usually an early riser, like 5.30, 5 a.m. up in Adam. But this morning I wasn't. I got up late and mum asked me, what are you doing? Like, what's taking so long? Are you going to come to the gym with me and train? And I said, no, nah, I'm not, not not training today. Like, I'm, I'm tired. And she was a bit weirded out by it because I usually went like, mm. six days a week and this was a Saturday. Why wasn't I going on a Saturday? Mm. And <laughs> there, was, there was no reason, like, looking at me. But I, I just said to her I was tired. I pretty much played my guitar all day, didn't talk to anyone, not even text anyone. And later that night, it was about 10.30, everyone sleeping upstairs. And I flicked my light off and I just laid in my bed listening to some quiet music with the same three questions going over my head. And they just got really heavy to the point where I said, I've actually had it. And so I pull up my phone and try to find someone I can send a last goodbye to. And the only person I thought would care was my girlfriend, Viv. So I spent half an hour throwing thoughts into a message, sent it and left my phone in my bed because nothing was going to stop me. So you, you sent the message but did not want to hear back? No. Because you didn't want somebody to try and convince you out of... Well, I didn't tell her what I was going to do, but I strongly suggested... Yeah, and stuck out of my house... I usually left the, this window just a little bit open so I could get back in. But that night, there was no thought of that. I just shut it. Matt attempted suicide that night, but we won't be discussing the attempt explicitly because it's not safe to discuss method or location. If you or anyone you know needs help, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. So I woke up in ICU two weeks later. I've been in a coma for two weeks and... A month into hospital, I got into the spinal ward, finally, and everyone there is adults. I was the baby of the ward, <laughs> to say the least. 
So, Matt, you wanted to bring Helen here today. Can you tell me why Helen is so important to you? So before my injury, I don't like talking. After my injury, nothing had changed. Sink sucks, what, like twice a day, 24-hour watch. I'd be mental after a while. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really didn't like it. And I remember this one day that changed my life a week before I left hospital. I got these two dermals. Yeah, and I um, came across this guy on a train half oh, halfway th- halfway back to North Shore because I was really happy at this time, right? I'd gotten these piercings I'd wanted for months and I was feeling good. I had this energy. And this guy comes on the train, looks, looks to his right. He's like, what did you do to yourself? And I said, oh, I attempted suicide. I hadn't told anyone up to that point what I'd actually done. But I swear it was a mixture of how abrupt he was and how happy I was. But to that, he said, oh, that was pretty stupid, wasn't it? Yeah. And it blew my mind, right? <laughs> and this next morning I woke up with this sense of energy I hadn't had for as long as I can remember. And for the first time I went and saw Helen without her having to chase me up. And yeah, she basically said, Matt, you're good at maths. You put two together, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure that was a sign. Yeah. And um, maybe if you were to start talking to the people close to you in life, you could strengthen the relationship you already have with them. And that's when things really started changing for me. Helen, you're a senior social worker at a major Sydney hospital, so talk to me about when you met Matt. Matt was a patient in the unit that I work in. I remember seeing this very handsome, very charismatic, happy, smiling, gorgeous young man and thinking, oh, cool, this is going to be a nice one to work with. Um, He was engaging. (laughs) He wasn't reserved. He wasn't in the, you know, pity party. He wasn't a victim. I just really enjoyed it. My role is often when there is psychiatry involved, I leave that to the experts. I am not uh, trained in a profession that does diagnostic, so I, I don't diagnose. And I think the thing about social work is that it's really about connection and engagement. So for me, it's um, I can leave all that stuff about injury or why or what to those experts doing that, which Matthew says he was talking to. But, of course, it was that pathologising about, you know, um, where and why and all that, that ruminating. When I go in, <laughs> one of my strengths is is really stupidity and shooting the breeze. So <laughs> yes, it, it is. was. It, <laughs> <laughs> so it was just conversational. And everything I've heard Matt say today, and it's, it's funny, I sit here thinking it's hard to hear that stuff, you know, and I've known Matt a few years now, but everything Matthew says to me was just screaming for connection for somebody to just notice him, for someone to acknowledge him. And I think for me, I just kind of go in there and, and honestly, what we talked about was ice cream. And uh, yeah. we've got quite a history now around ice cream. Anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other story. However, it was something that was real and normal, I, I hope, and clearly that's why we retain a, a friendship and a relationship is because it was about connecting on something that wasn't looking at what is wrong with you and all that. I think mm-hmm. what made the difference about that fellow on the train was for the first time, somebody noticed him, someone called him out on it, and he named it. And when you name something, it takes the power out of it. And he said, well, it was a stupid thing to do. And for the first time, Matthew was honest. He was able to look at someone because they were a stranger and he wasn't challenged by it. And he could say, suddenly it all kind of fell into place. He could be honest about what he what extremes he'd had to go to, to not, I think, be noticed, but because there was such immense pain. Can I ask you, Helen, in your work, do you see a lot of teenagers who are looking for connection? 
I think what we're losing as a human race is a sense of connection. And what social work does, it's about relationship. And it's pretty simple. I don't think you have to be sophisticated. I don't think you have to special have a degree. You don't have to be clever. It is simply about saying, sitting with people. So when my patients say to me, how can I possibly live as a quadriplegic? This is crap. My answer to that is, you're right. This is complete crap. And actually, that's about as sophisticated as it gets. The capacity to sit with somebody with pain. And I think that Matthew was a very intelligent young man. At 12, to have those existential questions of who am I, where I am on the world, that's normal. We're, we all have those questions. Some mm. of us resolve that quicker than others. That's fairly early to have that. However, he didn't have anyone that could answer those questions for him. So what he did was he went searching, look at me, look at me, I'm worthless, where's my place in the world? And what would you say kids should do? If they're having those questions and can't answer them, what would you want them to be doing? Well, they, you would hope they would have someone that could say to them, you're okay. Who knows what the future brings? However, what we're going to do is we're going to have adventures. We're going to try. We're going to see what happens. You know, it's okay. It's not all about the ATAR, but to actually acknowledge you are worthy. Mm. Mm. You have worth in this world, whatever that is. You've got a long life ahead of you to work that out. But to actually say you're okay. And I think that Matt couldn't get that or that just wasn't a domain that had great strength in his family because I'm, believe you me, Matthew's family were very present in the ward. They were a loving, connected family. What are the red flags that you think parents need to look out for? I think some of the things that Matthew's talked about that would be a red flag would be becoming obsessed with a behaviour. So he goes to the skate park and then he's there actually every day and then he's there most of the day and then he's out with these people that I don't know. But apparently now he's sleeping over with with other friends and it's obsessive behaviours like diving into something. Why? Because he's trying to connect with someone or something. Or there was a drug. Drugs are easy because they take the pain away, sadly, only temporarily. Then there was the girl he could connect with. But then there was the gym. When you see these behaviours that become obsessional and become overtake your life, what, why are you, what's happening for you that you need this to be the thing that dominates your life? Because here I'm getting, you know, acknowledgement of, yes, I'm buff. All that, that doesn't actually take away the pain. So behaviours, when cha- behaviours change suddenly and also withdrawing. Withdrawing is predominantly something that is a red flag. Wanting to be alone. Now, that's hard because as a teenager, you have to give them their own space Mm. and they do have to go into their room and do their thing and you've got to allow them that space. But it's when they come out to say, you know, I always think, are you okay? Day is a great day. But saying, are you okay? And somebody goes, yep, I am. Yeah. You need to actually sit with that and say... Um, what are you doing right now, you know, and what are your hopes? Like what what are you going to be doing next week? And discovering if somebody has connection. Matt, talk me through some of the red flags that you think that parents need to look out for. Isolation is, uh, for me, was the biggest one. Sudden changes in behaviour, like the way they're talking as well might change. Like if they're um, like talking about more depressive things, like have a more apathetic approach to certain mm. conversations or topics. And what else would you want parents so, to know? To ask. If you think something's up, don't just think that. Approach it. Tackle it head on because you, you know, it's not going to get any better otherwise. And to also follow up. Like you can get a great idea of how someone's feeling by looking at them, but you don't know for sure. Depression doesn't come with a wheelchair. It doesn't have red marks. You need to ask if like, how they're feeling. 
And be okay if they don't want to talk to you. Encourage other supports, whether it be friends, family, like uncles, aunties, cousins, um, professional supports, always available. We live in a country where it's available everywhere, Headspace, Beyond Blue, Black Dog. Mm. There are so many like 1-800 numbers you could call, but they're not going to open up to you if they're not connected with you. Mm. So just asking how you're feeling and you've had no connection for 13, 14 years, why would they tell you anything? It's about building that connection. I think that's crucial. And like you mentioned, my mum was there physically with me in the gym and that was great. But there's also this whole other side to connection, which is like mental, emotional, spiritual. Like mentally, you're not thinking, oh, I've got that meeting at three. Oh, what am I going to cook for dinner? Oh, <clears throat> i get like the invoices done, whatever. Like, no, you're listening to them. Emotionally, you're putting yourself in their shoes, showing empathy and sympathy to what they're sharing. Whether it's exciting stuff, great stuff, Maybe it's more upsetting. They're being vulnerable with you. Show empathy and sympathy. So being present with them. So not just physically being in the same room, but actually you're saying, you know, that parents need to make that effort to to be present and to connect. Yeah, and if there's a time where, like, you want to ask how, like, how they are, like if, if they're okay, how they're feeling, really be ready to listen and be completely present with them. Do you think also there's still that stigma? Do you think that if you'd said to people, I'm feeling depressed or whatever, do you think that's still stopping some teenagers from speaking out or getting help? I think... Because you did say at one point you said, I'm not soft. So is that still that kind of attitude of, I'm all right, I can deal with this by myself? Yeah, like these are my thoughts are in my head, they're not like out there, like they're not bothering Helen right now, so why should I tell Helen how I'm feeling? I think yeah. that was the first time that anyone had ever penetrated the facade and it was mm. it, Matthew felt immediately vulnerable and so those messages um, throughout his life immediately came to the defence. So that's the fight, flight or freeze mm. and it, his is the basically, I'm okay, I'm tough, I'm the man. That's the the narrative he'd heard all his life. And for the first time, somebody pricked that vulnerability and he immediately came out as defensive. And and you're going to get that. And that's okay. What you have to do is persist. Mm. So I think that, you know, in terms of people listening, I think it's really hard because people are thinking, how can I be present all the time? And, you know, they'll actually cra- drive themselves crazy. Parenting's tough stuff. Sometimes mm. you get it right and sometimes you don't. The thing is I, to not be judgmental, to be available yeah. and actually to give yourself permission that, you know, you don't have all the answers. You're not going to see things sometimes. You're going to miss things. And the main message I could give to your parents today was you have got to role model and mentor right from the word go. Consistency and reliability are really good tools, but just mentor. Mentor what you want your kids to be. So so failures and vulnerabilities and challenges come the way we manage them are via resilience. And if we're con- constantly cotton-wooling people, uh, our young ones all the time and sort of and busy with our own lives, they're not developing resilience. And I know these are all just technical jargony words, but, boy, it's so true. What would you say to your younger self if you could go back and say something to 12-year-old Matt? What would you say to him? Follow your heart. Like plain and simple. As in I, I, I knew it was fulfilling to me what I loved, which was music. I played the guitar every day. 
I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. And I told people I wanted to be a musician and a performer. They told me that's not possible, get real. And I gave into that. And when I gave into that, all hope was lost. Talk to me, Matt, about why you feel it's so important to share your story. Because I know now what I'd love to talk about is the fact you do all this public speaking. What I've found, it's in my experience, like when I've been at a high school, I've shared my story. And then I'll have people who have never opened up to anyone in their life approach me. And what I think it is, it's, it's, a, um, it's an example, I suppose, of that these feelings are valid. Yeah. Not not just that, that firstly recovery is possible, helps out there. Yeah. And it makes it okay to talk about. I was going to say, maybe you are giving them permission exactly to right. say, I'm not okay. Exactly right. And they know that you get it. Coming out of that talk, I just feel alive. I know I, I, I connected with people in the audience and... I could see they were affected, especially some of the parents with the questions they asked. I had a lot of parents ask me questions because I believe they're, they're worried and, they're, and they're, in, they're in a bit of fear, which is completely understandable because no one wants their, their child to go through that, go through depression, suicide, and it's, it's, it's tough. And they want what's best for their children. It's, it's completely understandable. It was... It was powerful to see that and it inspires me to keep wanting to do more because this is my mission, this is my purpose and it is the reason I'm still here today. Do you still struggle now? Do you have bad days? How, how are things for you now? I still have bad days, don't get me wrong, but I don't believe I'm anxious, depressed or suicidal anymore. The reason that is is because I have, I live a fulfilled life. Mm-hmm. Like I know my, what's important to me. I know what I value and I live true to those values and I surround myself with the right people. And how does it make you feel when you've, you know, been totally vulnerable on stage, yeah. shared your story and then kids come up to you and say, oh, me too. How does that make you feel? It, it I, I can't bring it into words. <laughs> like, yeah, honestly. your face lights up. <laughs> I mean, I remember my, my first time sharing I was shaking afterwards. I was so nervous. I was thinking, what do these people think of me? And then they came up to me and thanked me. And that the fact that my worst times in my life were able to inspire someone to maybe potentially make change in their life, I'm yeah. like, Jesus Christ, the worst thing that ever happened to me was now the one thing I was most grateful for. I mean, amazing, isn't it? That's, that's a, that is amazing. <laughs> Matt and Helen, thank you so much for coming in today to talk to us um, about Matt's story, the advice that you've given Helen and Matt, the the tips that you've given to parents. And I just know that there are parents at the moment who are worried about their kids and perhaps seeing a few signs. And I, so I think that you have shared such practical advice and absolutely inspiring. So thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Navigating Parenthood. All five episodes are available now. Subscribe and rate and head to hcf.com.au slash podcast for more information and useful links. And remember, if you're feeling depressed or anxious and need to talk to someone now, call Lifeline on 13 11 14.